Welcome to the Health Leaders Podcast, the place for peer-sourced and solution-focused insights for healthcare executives, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. I'm Amanda Norris, and I'm the Revenue Cycle Editor for Health Leaders. Today, I'm here to chat with Becky Greenfield, partner at Wolf Pinkavage Law Firm in Miami, Florida. Becky specializes in representing healthcare providers such as hospitals, physician groups, and behavioral health providers in a variety of managed care, revenue cycle, transactional, and regulatory cases. So today I wanted to touch base with Becky to discuss what's on the horizon for revenue cycle leaders when it comes to the No Surprises Act. So thank you so much for joining me, Becky. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? You told me you live and breathe the No Surprises Act. So what exactly does that mean? And how did you become such an expert on this regulation? So we we have a small shop down in Miami, but we specialize in all things managed care and revenue cycle. And so as you can imagine, No Surprises Act fits squarely within this revenue cycle piece. And so when the interim rules came out, you know, my goal was to um, digest it as much as possible so that I could start consulting our clients on how to not only comply with the various notice requirements, but also establish various workflows for good faith estimates and ultimately for those that are engaging in the IDR process. And So not only are we doing this consulting work, our firm has a complex claim denial team where we've established kind of proprietary platform to do claims work. And so it kind of the natural, the natural progression was to start doing the IDR work for some of our clients as well. So the department's recently finalized the No Surprises Act final rules. Were there any big changes that revenue cycle leaders should be preparing for? The final rule was pretty narrow. It most it really just addressed some portions of the IDR process, but there were kind of three, I guess, major outcomes of this one. The first, which everyone was really stressed about, was what the agency was going to do about the QPA. So, if some of the listeners recall, the No Surprises Act statute required the arbitrators to consider. Not only the QPA, which is for the most, which is the in-network median contract rate for a particular geographic region. And it also required the arbitrators to consider other factors, including the provider's level of training, the provider and payer's market share, the patient's acuity, teaching status, case mix, and scope of services, and then the history of the contracting between the parties. That was the statute. When the agencies issued their interim final regs, however, they kind of pivoted and said, no, really, we want a presumption in favor of the QPA. And then arbitrators, you can consider these other things if you think that they're kind of trustworthy, but there was really a focus on the QPA. There was a ton of litigation. Ultimately, the courts found in the provider's favor in that the court said the arbitrators that 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 CMS essentially CMS and the agencies overstepped their bounds and over misinterpreted or overinterpreted the statute and so essentially that the arbitrators have to consider the QPA and these other factors and in these final rules 
the departments did in fact kind of adopt the court's findings saying that the arbitrators have to consider all the factors. I will say in reading the, pre the preamble of these final rules, it is still kind of clear that the agencies consider the QPA to be the strongest element to consider. And they go into a pretty long detail of how an arbitrator should consider these other factors um, as compared to the QPA. But, you know, it was, it, it was a win. They do have to consider these other factors. So I think that was probably the biggest part of the rule and that everyone was really alert about. Another element of the final rule was a discussion about downcode. So I can tell you from our own experience in engaging in these IDRs for the hospitals, the plans, as they have for a long time, downcode emergency services. So, you know, instead of paying at an emergency four, they'll pay at an emergency three, emergency three or two. And what we were finding and what other providers around the country apparently were, were discovering is that the EOBs didn't expressly say that the claim was downcoded. And more importantly, the QPA that was issued on the on the EOB was only for the downcoded code. So not only are we not only are we getting paid less than what we believe is the correct amount for an out-of-network rate, we're getting paid at the wrong rate for the wrong code. And so that in the final rule, the departments address this and say that if a plan is going to be downcoding a claim, they need to provide a statement in the EOB that it was downcoded. They need to explain why it was downcoded and what codes were downcoded. And they also have to include not only the QPA for the downcoded code, but for the original build code. And that's really going to be, I think, helpful as we move from not only open negotiation, but through the IDR process so that we can, we know, we have a better sense of what we're really fighting for. So that was, that was the other, that was the second big thing that came out of the final rule. And then there were, there were some other, some other things, one of which was the arbitrators now must for each IDR issue an opinion basically explaining why they chose the offer that they did. So, so those are the big ones, I would say. I feel like downcoding like that is almost like a form of fraud, wouldn't you say? That's a whole long <laughs> other issue that we could probably talk about in another session. Yes, um, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, we litigate that issue, you know, a lot of uh, analysis into the, rec the medical records and medical necessity determinations. So, Yes. What we're seeing, I mean, what we're seeing, at least in Florida, but I imagine it's all over the country, is this IDR process really not on the forefront of everyone, of hospital decision makers' minds, because hospitals tend to be in network with the large payers, and their AR is really focused on in-network claims. The physicians, on the other hand, they tended either to a managed care contracting strategy, which was either no, no or limited contracts, or what we were also seeing with some of our clients, they were just getting kicked out of networks 
in anticipation of the NSA, the payers were saying you can take, you know, a 50% rate cut or you can, you can leave our network. And so they have a lot more on the line in terms of revenue with respect to these out-of-network claims. And as onerous as this process is, because let me tell you, it is extremely onerous. It is extremely complicated. It is, you know, some of it can be automated for sure, but there's definitely still manual oversight needed and people just don't have the resources to to pay attention to this, obviously. But but on the physician side, the, the codes are, I don't want to say easier, but it's less complicated than like a DRG in a hospital setting. And so we're finding that these these IDRs and open negotiations in the hospital setting, just because of how complicated the reimbursement is for that type of provider, is it's complicated. And um, I'm really interested in seeing what the outcomes are going to be through the IDR process. Yes, I agree. You mentioned a little bit about these time-consuming tasks. So this brings me to my next point. This No Surprises Act as a whole has put a huge burden on front-end revenue cycle staff, especially in regards to the good faith estimates. So will staff be seeing any relief from the final rules? This rule, as I said before, the one that was put out in August does not mention anything about good faith estimates, how to communicate good faith estimates between unaffiliated providers and advanced explanation of benefits. That's not in this one. However, there there is a sister rule that was approved by the OBM. At least that's what I'm that's my understanding from speaking with government affairs individuals. And it was it was approved back in August. But it still has not been released to the public yet. So, you know, my guess is as good as anyone's is what it's going to say and how much relief or guidance it's going to provide to um, to the hospitals. I know that the AHA, along with other provider associations, they've really been challenging the agencies on this piece and tell, you know, and expressing their concern that there's there's really no existing infrastructure to share estimates between unaffiliated providers. There, there needs to be some type of automated or electronic transaction that allows them to do this within the time frames required under the law. And before CMS can provide this, it, you know, it's it's really fair to providers, especially in this environment, and probably impossible for providers to comply for a majority of the time. So unfortunately, I don't have any good news yet, but I, I, I suggest that everyone just kind of be on the lookout for this final rule coming out. Yeah, providers have definitely been pushing for that extra guidance on these time-consuming tasks on the front end. So hopefully there's something coming, hope, something positive. So moving forward, what are some tips revenue cycle leaders can use to comply with this rule? I know a little bit earlier, you and I were talking about all these studies that come out and say, you know, 51% of hospitals still aren't complying. It's it's crazy. So what can revenue cycle leaders do to help? Yeah, I mean, I think working with your compliance teams, educating your front end staff, finding the right partners to the extent that you you are going to go through these IDRs, you know, you may not be able to do that in-house. So finding the right partner that understands the rule. For the good faith estimate, again, getting compliance and legal involved and educating the importance and, and just the, the various factors that 
that come along with this role will be really important and it might be changing. So making sure that your government affairs people are on the front line and know what's in the pipeline will also be really important so that you can manage everyone's expectations downstream. Yeah, keeping an eye on this regulatory guidance is definitely key, especially since it's changing so quickly. One last thing, the DOL CMS, they are consistently issuing new FAQs and guidance and manuals and pamphlets. So there's there's sometimes some pretty good information and pretty technical information in that stuff. So, you know, I would I would have someone be monitoring those websites. So as we roll into 2023, what do you see for the future of the No Surprises Act? Do you think CMS will be scaling back any of these requirements or adding to them? What are your thoughts? I don't really see them scaling back. I think for a few years now, there's been a real goal for transparency in healthcare. There's various other laws that are already in place or portions of it have been in place in, like, for example, these your transparency laws that are keep getting delayed. And I think this, especially with the good faith estimate, that obviously goes towards transparency. So I don't see any scaling back. I certainly don't think that CMS is going to scale back the balance billing protections that are now afforded to all, basically all um, individuals with health insurance in this country. What I hope is that CMS and the agencies are developing tools that will assist in the implementation of this goal so that it is less onerous and that providers have some assistance. I don't know when that's going to happen and I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's that's my hope. And, you know, we'll we'll get through this. Like everything else, we'll find a way. There'll be a inventive company that will find the solution for this too. You know, I'm hopeful we'll be on the other side of this in a couple of years. Time will tell. I mean, hopefully not too much time knowing CMS, but we will see. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today, unfortunately. I know you're very busy, so I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for joining me today, Becky, and sharing this with us. Thanks so much for having me. Till next time. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of our show. And thank you for listening to the Health Leaders Podcast. And we'll be back next Tuesday with more healthcare industry insights.